Hi, Nancy. Hey. Hey, Shane. Hi. Hi. I have a question for you. Yep. <laughs> wow, you're, you're on it today. <laughs> um, what, is, what is the one thing that you could not live without and you cannot say books? My glasses. <laughs> I'm blind. You know how blind I am. What's, do you know what your prescription is? Oh, yeah. It's like minus nine. Oh, my ten. God. Yeah. Wow. I'm not just like, I'm not just saying that like, oh, I couldn't live without my glasses like because I need to drive. Like, I can't see, you know, probably a foot in front of me. Wow. <laughs> that is impressive. <laughs> so, so I'm, so yeah. So for those of you who have no idea, like uh, how prescriptions work, I'm like minus a minus four something in one eye and three something in the other. Which is like bad enough. Is, like you need also to wear them all the time. Pretty bad. I think yeah. like you, have, if you're like minus like point five or something, you're kind of okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nine. So like how thick? I'm looking at you thick. now. They're like Coke. Well, I'm wearing my contacts yeah, right exactly. now, so I normally wear contacts. But my glasses are like, I mean, they're thinned. Like you know the lenses, like you get them mm-hmm. thin when they're so thick, and they're still so thick. Like I can't have metal frames; they're like Coke bottles. <laughs> they're like warped on the side. Oh, so okay. <laughs> I, so your challenge now is to one day wear these glasses in the work so that we could see you. I do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in a manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, so I was asking you, Nancy, about the one thing uh, that you couldn't live without, uh, because today we are talking about the one thing, or one of the things, probably the most important thing that we people cannot live without, aside from oxygen, which Lauren pointed out to me. Thank you, Lauren. Mm-hmm. And, our, and our iPhones. No. And our iPhones. Oh, uh-huh. God, not our iPhones. Uh, but water. We're talking about water. Today's about water. 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 Uh, I love water. I just got some nice, lovely water. Oh, yes. We have we have fruit-infused water. We do hear it at you. Every once so in a while. Fancy. It's I love one it. of our lovely perks. Uh, but uh, so we're talking about water today. And actually, Lauren and I went and um, interviewed a researcher last year who is actually part of uh, AAAS. Um, what's AAAS's acronym stand for? American Association for the Advancement of Science. Thank you very much, Lauren. Uh, their Leshner Fellowship Program. My name is Christopher or Chris Scott. I'm a professor of geography and water resources at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and I'm the director of the Udall Center for Studies in Public Policy that works on water, food, land, and also native governance and native nations questions. Yeah, so basically Chris works um, and researches in the world of like water security, so where it is, who gets it, sanitation policy, et cetera. That sounds important. It's, It's very important. So water is this often underappreciated or under uh, less looked at, uh, you know, resource. Uh, now, just imagine uh, every day, uh, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of kids dying every day for lack of access to clean water in the developing world. It's a, it's, it's, it's perhaps the largest public health crisis humanity has ever known. And it goes on today, day in, day out. Um, And there are a lot of solutions to address those kinds of questions of the availability and quality of water that not just kids, but humans need, and kids being the most vulnerable. So underage mortality related to um, waterborne disease is is this really important um, public health crisis. 
I grew up in India, and uh, I lived for uh, essentially all of my childhood in uh, the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. And yes, that's the way it's pronounced in English. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of the, the, the Himalayas and whatever. Anyhow, uh, that that region also is interesting because it's a source of rivers that that support a huge share of South Asia's humanities. Water quality is India's by far and away biggest challenge. Uh, there's a huge industrial and, of course, urban sector that uses and contaminates and pollutes water. Much of the water is untreated or insufficiently treated. So I've waded around in sewage rivers uh, without wading boots and, you know, basically with trash bags in my boots because we were collecting samples in rivers of shit. I mean, human shit and, uh, and, and discussing stuff like goats and buffaloes parts floating through the river and just the smell is just overpowering mm-hmm. you know you can just imagine you are at you know the toilet of the city and you're uh and and so you know there's a huge need for wastewater treatment and 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 let me tell you the i wish it was just as simple as stinky shit you know what's really nasty is the heavy metal contamination and the pharmaceutical byproducts. And, you know, we have these things in our water, wastewater systems here in in the developed world too. We've just been more successful in investing in and insisting on the, you know, water quality and environmental controls to be able to to see that, that water is treated adequately. Yeah, tell us more about wading around in sewage rivers. <laughs> oh, yeah. So let me tell you about that uh, sewage river in uh, Hyderabad, and I've done this work in, in, uh, in Mexico. I've done this work in many other locations. Um, so cities consume people in our uh, domestic, but also commercial and industrial establishments use a huge amount of what are called surfactants, basically soaps and detergents and other kinds of things. And when they get out in the environment and aren't treated properly, they generate foam, okay? So I've been to small cascading, not big waterfalls, but just, you know, where the, where the water courses over some rocks. So think of like the big falls area up here in D.C., right? Mm-hmm. And imagine a sewage river flowing through that. It generates a huge amount of foam. And I have seen a water buffalo, and water buffaloes are attuned to being in the water because that's the way their, you know, life cycle is, and they kind of cool themselves off in the heat and whatever. This water buffalo emerging from one of these foam waterfalls but colored pink because somebody's dye had gotten in with the surfactants and the foaming. And so you've got this, and it it looked like a spittle bug, (laughs) but like from a distance, like this like drippy, but but like the foam, literally like encasing its whole body. Yeah. Oh okay, God. and so now you're out there, and the smell is often overpowering. Um, and so one of the studies was: is there a natural process by which the river? Because you'd notice that you'd go twenty or thirty kilometers, say say ten or fifteen miles downstream from the city, and the water was not necessarily back to quality, but it's oh so much better than up here. But it wasn't going through wastewater treatment. So what's going on there? So there's a natural process through aeration and through some of the water that gets filtered out of what's called, you know, the groundwater that would come in. You know, there's sort of a natural treatment process. Well, could we accentuate this? Is there some way in which so we're doing a study to look at what the quality of the biota is in the river. And so we were sampling for macroinvertebrates 
for basically, uh, you know, different kinds of, uh, of beetles and insects mm-hmm. and other kinds of things, and some larval stage rather at different points in the river. But the first one was right by the outfall from the, you know, the city's butchery, right, with the, literally the eyeballs and, the, and, and, you know, the things just floating by. Oh and we're in there in our, in our, we didn't have waiter boots. We should have gotten like proper waiter boots, mm-hmm. right? Like you can imagine fly fishing and you'd go in with some protection. No, what we had was just like black trash bags like as socks in like your boot. And so you'd have a kind of a, you know, knee-high boot, and then you'd like have this rubber band up here like to, you know, kind of have these improvised waders because we wanted to get in to collect these macroinvertebrate samples. And now we've got like a thousand people on the bridge looking at these like idiot <laughs> scientists down here saying, what the hell are those guys doing? And you can hear what they're starting to talk. And it's in Hindi, and they're saying, oh, they've probably lost, oh, I, I think one of them lost their ring. They're down there looking for some uh. lost jewelry. <laughs> That's the only reason I'd ever get in that water. Like, you know, and, and so you start getting in this whole kind of dynamic going on um, and everything. And so we did macroinvertebrate studies that show that, you know, biodiversity goes from almost zero, but it's not zero, even in the, the awful, right, O-F-F-A-L, this, this sort of, you know, the outfall stuff from the butchery mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the human shit floating by and everything. Um, you know, there's, st- there's still life in that river. Wow. Um, to 20 or 30 kilometers down. And it's, it's, it's much, much better water quality. Still not anywhere near drinking, but certainly acceptable for irrigation of mm-hmm. crops. Ew, that is so gross. Oh, so gross. <laughs> <laughs> Remember uh, when we talked to that woman who studies whale poop, Shane? Oh, yeah. I think this is a lot worse than whale poop. Well, so, yeah, I mean, it's, this is not great. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, this reminds me of when I was younger, not that much. I mean, I was in high school, I guess. I was, um, I grew up in country rural america and i was playing like paintballs with paintballs paintball with my friends we were just like running around shooting paintballs. Each other paintballs paintballs um and uh, i don't i don't know i was like running across this field at my friend's place uh, on his property and i ended up like falling into this hole that was like it, it seemed like a marsh or something and like i fell in like and i popped myself back out and i was like what the hell did i just fall in and it turns out that they had an open septic tank um, which is not legal by any means, what? but like, yeah. yeah. Cause like rural places have septic tanks. Right. right. So like they just, theirs was, um, I think the top like rusted open or something. So that was just open. So it was like falling, like up to my chest, uh. um, into, yes. So, uh, so I burned all my clothes <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then yeah. like, so do you have like, then, like hepatitis now? Myself. Okay. No, I have nothing. Thankfully, <laughs> oh, um, every, everything oh worked God. out fine. And at the time I didn't even realize, like I didn't think about how big of a deal it was, but no, it's absolutely terrible. How bad did you smell? Uh, pretty terribly. Yeah. Ooh. I literally, I literally like, I think I may have literally burned my clothes and I know I scrubbed in bleach. Like it was one of those things. That's so, like a good plan. Yeah. So up until this point, I forgot that. So thank you, Third Pod from the Sun, for reminding me. We're bringing up long lost <laughs> tragic memories from Shane's youth. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, that sounds pretty disgusting, but Chris actually does things besides just disgusting field work. Uh-huh. He has to go to some, you know, pretty remote places. Um, he was telling us a story about one time he went to Nepal and getting there was just really difficult. I get out in the field and really want to work in the field. And sometimes that means sitting in the bus where there's 60 people on this little mini bus that was built for 20. And and we had to get out every time we had to go up the hill because that poor little bus just <laughs> did not have the power to go up the hill. It's it's basically got oh. the size of a 
of like a F-150 truck engine or something. You know, Jeez. and like it's hauling 60 people up oh, this wow. slippery, like muddy dirt road. And I've got pictures on my laptop if you want to see some of this. And then you come to the place where the raging torrent coming in the side. So it's a side stream or a side river. And the bridge has washed out. And either you just take your chance. The driver will take the chance. And um, so there's the right balance between if there's no passengers in there, it's just too light and it will literally float away. Versus if there's too many passengers, its little tires get stuck down in the in you know in in the rocks at the bottom of the stream. So we had to be pushed out by the backhoe, and luckily there's a backhoe there. You <laughs> Why know, because, is there a backhoe well, there? Well, the backhoe was building the or helping to repair the bridge that had washed out. Mm-hmm. But you're going to wait a month for the bridge to be built? No. Well, you got to cross. And luckily, the backhoe is there and whatever. So, well, t- tell us more about that. Like, yeah. How, yeah. So, so you know, this is Where maybe yeah. So this is this is this is story time. This is so August 2017. So just about a year ago, I was invited to uh, Kathmandu, Nepal, to lead the water security chapter of a broad assessment that looked at a whole range of things: agriculture, energy, poverty, education. I mean, it's sort of you know, what's the region? So I, I flew out to Kathmandu. And uh, this is August. The monsoons in South Asia typically go from the middle of June until kind of the end of August. So I said, I'm going to not take a chance, but if I'm there at the end of the workshop, uh, and you know they weren't going to organize a field trip, and it's not like I insisted they should, but I was going to organize my own field trip. Mm-hmm. So I was going to go out to see some of the research locations of, in this case, the Kali Gandaki River, it's called. That is one of the tributaries to the Ganges. It flows down through Nepal, but it starts in Tibet. I'm going to Muktinath, which is an important religious site at the source of one of these tributary rivers. So I fly out of Kathmandu into a place called Pokhara, which is a regional town. And that's a pretty easy flight. And there's like six, eight flights every day and a number of people fly. But to go from Pokhara up to Jomsom is a 15-minute flight in what's called a steep takeoff and landing STOL plane that just roars up the mountain to get up that high. And it screams down the backside of the mountain and lands on this little teeny, um, you know, runway strip on on the side of the mountain. You said 15, like 1-5. 15 minutes. It's a 15-minute flight. (laughs) It's a 15-minute flight. So you're just going like up. Yeah. And you're like strapped in. And this thing is like really powerful. And there's like, (laughs) I don't know, 15 people on board or something, you know. So it's a little, it's a little plane. But it's got two big engines, steep takeoff and landing. And so you get into Muktinath. And when you get to the airport, they say, well, you know, there's clouds. We're not sure it's going to fly. Um, okay, wait. And then the flight time, I forget, was like 6 in the morning or something. And you get there at 7 and 8. And, that's, you know, you sort of understand. But you're, you're waiting in Pokhara's, you know, uh, airport waiting room and, you know, drinking tea. And, you know, I, I speak Nepali, so I, you know, talk with some of the local folks and whatever. And so you get into to Jomsom. And I do the first day of getting acclimatized because I'd gone from Kathmandu and Pokhara, probably about the same elevation. It's not actually that high. It's like three, 4,000 feet above sea level. It's down in the valleys. And now I'm up at 11,500 feet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've spent time at higher elevations, but you need to get acclimatized. So I spend the day walking around to go see some of the Buddhist gompas and some of the buckwheat fields. You eat buckwheat pancakes? Did you ever mm-hmm. know where buckwheat is grown? There's some interesting yeah. places. And, you know, so the, and a very strong irrigation culture. And I'm one of these guys who kind of really thinks about and, you know, is interested in well, where's the water flow and whatever, but what does it mean to people's livelihoods and irrigation systems and everything? So the next day afterwards, I go up to Muktinath. And I partly walk up, but I partly take a little bus up. And that was not all that bad. There's, you have to get off and walk during certain places because, you know, and I've had other stories where uh, the bus was actually, they disassembled the whole bus and carried it on their back to the other side of the gorge and rebuilt it over there and reconstructed. And now you, you go across the gorge by foot and you get on the other side and now there's a bus, but it only runs up there because it was wow. disassembled and rebuilt. 
uh, up huh. in some of these locations in, in, in the Himalayan regions. So a long story short, I'm coming back down from uh, from Muktinath to the town of Jomsom. Beautiful location. I've again, got some pictures, water spouts. They've, you know, it's a spring at the bottom of this mountain in an arid region, arid uh, valley. And the water is the critical thing to see up there. I mean, not just see, but the pilgrimage is to this, the source of water. So I'm back to Jomsom, and the clouds have come in even more now. And so I say to actually my 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 uh, host of my of my lodge where I'm staying, do you think the flight's going to go? And he goes, I don't know, but I'll try to put in some inquiry with you know I know somebody who works at the airport, and they go, you know, the flights haven't been coming the whole couple of days you were up at Muktinath and came back down here the last three days, no flights. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bunch of people waiting for their flights and waiting for their flights. And I go, but I've got a flight out of Jomsom to I've got a flight out of Bokra to Kathmandu back through Abu Dhabi and Dubai back to LAX and back to Tucson and I got to be in class I'm a professor I'm teaching and so I've got to get back I've got to get back and well the only way you can really get back is to take the bus down and so I say okay I'm gonna guess I'm gonna have to take the bus down so I get on the bus at six in the morning we get a few miles out and you know and it's like it's pouring rain and there are potholes, and this does not even look like a road. I mean, it really looks like a hiking trail. It's a little wider, and the reason it's only a, the size of an F-150 or something, because you can't get in a big bus up there. I mean, you know, forget it. Take a tour bus up there. Like, there's no road. I mean, you know, so this is like a pothole thing the whole way. So we get to maybe 6, 7, it must have left, and say 10 o'clock. It's raining heavily now. The road's closed. The landslides have cut the road. Oh, geez, what do we do, Okay. And I find two Nepali uh, young guys, and I say, hey, would you help me? I've got all my, like, conference gear. So I've got, like, my suit and my tie, and I've got my computer and laptop, and I've got, you know, my whole stuff for, like, the trip from Tucson all the way out there. Long story short, we hike across 8 or 10 kilometers of landslide things and some places where, like, the little road construction camp is completely immersed in debris. So a lot of pictures that you see of, you know, like, uh, the California flash floods and everything like that, you know, just stuff mm-hmm. buried in debris. And this yeah. has come down last night and everything. So we get to the other side and there's this little bus that had come up the last way. And meanwhile, we see those passengers hiking up to get on our bus, <laughs> which is going to turn around and go back up and we're going right. to get on their bus. So we're going down and, uh, you know, the road is getting worse and worse because as you go further down the mountain too, you're coming back into the rainfall area. This is in the rain shadow area. The, the far side of the mountains is high and dry up on the Tibetan plateau and it's dry up there and it doesn't rain as much. But the further down you go into the Nepali heartland, it's raining more and more of the same storms. And this is now the Kali Gandaki River that up there was a wide valley, but a relatively narrow course of rivers. Now this raging torrent. And if this bus slips and mm-hmm. you roll, you know, not only are you like in the river, but the river will just wash you away. I mean, it's a it's a it's a raging river now. It's a huge river, and getting pushed across with the with the backhoe and pushing the bus up everything. So we had sp- expected to get to Pokhara, having left at six in the morning. Had the bus been on time and the landslides not been washed out, it would have been a twelve hour bus trip. Okay, for the 15-minute flight, mm-hmm. okay? but And going down now. But we get three-quarters of the way at midnight. So now, what, 18 hours later? We left at 6 in the morning. We get, you know, 18 hours. Next morning, so we check into this little, um, we, I made friends with um, a Nepali guy and his uh, daughter, and they had simply gone up for the pilgrimage themselves to go to Muktinath and have darshan, you know, to have the religious uh, view of the, of the thing. And some uh, international and uh, European uh, trekker, hiker types. And whatever. So the next morning now we get up at 6 o'clock in the morning in this, after this flea-bitten hotel and whatever and get to Jomsom. 
uh, get to Pokhara, I'm sorry. And it's in time for my flight to Kathmandu. <laughs> so I'm like relieved because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back to Tucson. And guess what? The flight came down. <laughs> I could have saved all of that. <laughs> Almost 36-hour, oh, not ordeal, God. but adventure or like whatever because what? my seat was on that flight and it did make it down that day. What were you thinking <laughs> that whole time when you were just like, what, were you thinking this is an adventure, I'm just going to go with it, or were you just like, my life sucks? Um, you know, I, I, I've been on a lot of those kinds of buses. I do, I guess I had a sort of an innate trust that, that if the situation had gotten so severe that I would have backed out of it or that these bus drivers, and he was one bus driver and four dudes whose only job was to clear stones out of the way and, and whatever, right? And so you, you, you go with your sort of mobile... Uh, you know, and, 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 and they also had a good sense and they were saying we were going to go, but clearly their bus was kind of giving out. So I, I was, I, I was concerned, but I wanted to come back. But if the situation I think had gotten totally, uh, out of control, I would have, I would have stepped out and just taken a, you know, like gotten late to get back to Tucson. Yeah, but yeah. this is the story you have now. This is the story <laughs> I have, exactly. How, you know, if the 15 minute flight had worked, there'd be no story. <laughs> Has anyone had a, a harrowing bus or public transportation journey? Yeah, actually I have. When uh, I lived for a little while in a small town in the Peruvian Andes um, at the bottom of this really beautiful valley. And uh, every so often we'd have to go up to the mountains and go to different towns or to get to the big cities where the other stuff was. And uh, I think literally every bus trip I took through those mountains I feared for my life. <laughs> yeah. Was like, it one of those, like, there's no guardrail? There's no just, guardrail. It is yeah. cliff on one side, yeah. sheer drop on the other side, and drivers who just don't care so much about road safety. Uh, I feel like that's, yeah. like, always, like, non-U.S., like, yeah. like wherever you oh, go absolutely. on a bus, like, not in the United States, up a mountain, you're like, I might die right now. Yeah. yeah. My, my partner lived in <laughs> Ethiopia for a while, and she tells these stories about, she's like, People didn't worry about like the food or like even getting like attacked by some sort of wildlife thing or anything like that. It was a bus. If yep. you were going to die, it was going to be on a bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I'm not a religious person, but I remember praying <laughs> so many times for my life. Like, please, God, just uh, let me make it through this one bus trip. Well, we are happy that you're here with us. Me too. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thank you so much to Shane and Lauren for uh, this episode. And of course, to Chris for sharing his work with us. Uh, the podcast is also produced with help from Josh Spicer, Elia Ambrosio, Liza Lester, and Katie Brondo. And thanks to Adele Coleman for producing this episode. And if you love this podcast, which I'm sure you do, you can rate and review us on iTunes. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts or, of course, at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>